This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by Wendell Berry. The sense of the holiness of life is not compatible with an exploitive economy. You cannot know that life is holy if you are content to live from economic practices that daily destroy life and diminish its possibility. And many, if not most, Christian organizations now appear to be perfectly at peace with the military-industrial economy and its scientific destruction of life. Surely, if we are to remain free, and if we are to remain true to our religious inheritances, we must maintain a separation between church and state. But if we are to maintain any sense or coherence or meaning in our lives, we cannot tolerate the present utter disconnection between religion and economy. By economy, I do not mean economics, which is the study of money-making, but rather the ways of human housekeeping, the ways by which the human household is situated and maintained within the household of nature. To be uninterested in economy is to be uninterested in the practice of religion. It is to be uninterested in culture and in character. Psalm 19, one through nine, is rendered by non Merrill. The heavens declare the glory of the creator. The firmament proclaims the handiwork of love. Day to day, speech pours forth, and night to night, knowledge is revealed. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet does their music go out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, a tent for the sun is set, which is like a bride and groom on their wedding night, as they sing love song and celebrate the dance of life. Its rising is in eternity, and its circuit to infinity. There is nothing hidden from the sunlight. The law of love is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of love is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of love are right, rejoicing the heart. The authority of love is pure, enlightening the eyes. The spirit of love is wondrous, enduring forever. The rights of love are true, awakening compassion. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to the Gospel of John 2, uh, 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, including the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, this temple's been under construction for 46 years, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Well, I have to admit, I was pretty excited when I saw that this was the lectionary text this week. Jesus has had it up to here, and now he's ready to do something about it. He's ready to get in there and and mix things up and flip over some tables. And boy, I just can't wait to, you know, expound on all the things Jesus would flip over today. Maybe you're there with me. And I think that's maybe a temptation with a text like this to recruit Jesus to our side of things, whatever side that is. To assume Jesus is mad about all the same things we are. And this is a temptation, of course, wherever we are on the political spectrum. If you're passionately anti-choice, you perhaps might imagine Jesus storming into Planned Parenthood and making a ruckus. If you're in favor of gun control, you'd likely imagine Jesus going into the offices of the NRA and kicking over gun displays and throwing ammunition in the trash, all nonviolently, of course. And if you're part of the little-known anti-fun party, you'd imagine Jesus going into Toys R Us and breaking dolls and spilling Legos and tackling Jeffrey the giraffe. As I said, little-known anti-fun party. We naturally assume Jesus is on our team whatever team that is, and that he would stand on most issues where we do. Anne Lamott uh, put it this way, you can safely assume you've created God in your image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) I wonder if we can apply that to Jesus as well. Maybe so. But fortunately, we do have uh, some historical records uh, in the Gospels as to what Jesus did and thought in his own time and place. And so before we go ahead and assume that we know what Jesus is upset about in an episode like this, it's worth probing a bit deeper as best we can to try to figure out what exactly was he so upset about. And once we've established that, then we can do the work of thinking, what might Jesus be upset about today? So it certainly could be the case that Jesus would stand where we do on a given issue. But if we're going to claim that, let's do some of the work that would help us support that understanding. In case you were worried, thankfully, the historical record doesn't show Jesus having any opinion on Legos. So uh, you're safe on that. Some of you were sweating in a minute there. 
or just my kids. Well, historians tend to uh, hold with a certain level of skepticism a number of the gospel stories, uh, particularly many of the miracle stories. It's the job of a historian to say when dealing with ancient texts, did this really happen? Or was this told in this way by the writer to make a particular point, even if it didn't happen exactly that way, or maybe even didn't happen at all? Well, this incident of Jesus in the temple is recorded by all four Gospels, all four Gospels, and is held by most scholars as one of the indisputable facts on which historians can construct a view of Jesus's public work. So all signs point to Jesus really did this. But what exactly is Jesus upset about and what do his actions signify? Well, it's helpful to remember that temples in ancient times uh, embodied a symbolic architecture. In other words, in the very way these religious buildings constructed, they were telling you something about the world or a particular view of what the world was. A temple in ancient times was considered to be a microcosm of the entire universe or the cosmos. So we have embodied in miniature how God or the gods want the world to be. And so for this reason, William Herzog notes, everything was important when building a temple. And it started with location. Most temples were built on mountains or high places. Um, the temple in Jerusalem was built on what's called the Temple Mount. And these high places were understood to be a place where heaven and earth meet. And so it was the closest point at which mortals could come to engage with or experience uh, God or the gods. And so um, the temple in Jerusalem was no different now, a temple was usually constructed on a series of raised platforms. And as you would move up those raised platforms, of course, you were moving along a path higher and higher into a more holy and sacred place, ultimately into a most sacred place, which was considered the closest place human beings could get to the divine. And the temple in Jerusalem also followed this pattern. Its outer courtyard was the lowest courtyard. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by a sign or signs uh, with solemn warnings against trespassing. We'll let you into this outer courtyard outside the temple precincts, but that's as far as you can go. Who was that outer court for, do you think? I heard women. Close. But no. Slaves? Eh, not necessarily. Gentiles. Non-Jews. Um, and maybe someone said that, and so you're right. Um, so this lowest courtyard actually out, was outside of the actual temple grounds itself because they didn't want any non-Jews uh, to sort of infiltrate the sacred space. So it was for the out-group, if you will, at the time, everyone who is not us. Um, after this uh, was the lowest courtyard that was inside the actual temple precincts. Now, who do you think this was for? 
The women, yes. The women. So the first level at which you could actually be inside the temple precincts was for the women. After this were steps uh, leading to what was called the Nicanor Gate and the Court of the Israelite Men. So after the women was now a space for the men. And this was Israelite men only. So no women, no Gentiles, only the men. Um, Sort of like at a sporting event. Uh, At the Breslin Center in East Lansing, for example, they have the Izone. Right? You've heard of the Izone. It's for Michigan State students to sit and be loud and cheer on their team. Right? And they wear their white and green. And it's one of the loudest sections, right, of any... um, of any sporting arena. And as a Michigan grad, I probably wouldn't be let in there. They don't, they don't want any Wolverines in the Izzone. Uh, but of course, the mistake they made this year is to let Wolverines on the court. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. That's, that's terrible. So the court of the men. And this court was separated from the next one, which was for the priests. This one was for the priests. Uh, and there was sort of a, a wall that prevented the men from going into this holy space where the priests did their work, and then they could go up another level yet and enter into the actual temple building itself to burn the incense and do sacrifices and things like that. And even beyond that, there was one more spot, right? The Holy of Holies. And only one person could go in there, the high priest, and that was once a year. And so you can see this raised series of platforms, these courtyards and platforms, all embodying right this ideology of hierarchy. And certain people are only allowed to be so close to God, and those people we consider pure, cleaner, what have you. And so if we put all the pieces together, William Herzog notes, it's clear that the temple embodied a social ideology and a political theology. In other words, this represents the world as we imagine God wants it to be. Right? And so we're also going to base our society on what we see modeled in the temple because the temple is the model for humanity. And so we're going to have these stratifications not just in the temple, but throughout society. The ancient historian Josephus noted that how the temple was built was not on accident. He said it was not without its mystic meaning. It typified or reflected the universe. And at the pinnacle of this symbolic order was the high priest and the high priestly families who controlled the temple. And so with this in mind, we can understand why the Pharisees sort of modeled their table fellowship or who they would eat with after the temple life and after the priests. If the priests were supposed to remain set apart from average people, from women, from the unclean, from Gentiles, well, then the Pharisees thought we shouldn't eat with those people either because we want to be pure like the priests. And I don't know that they did this always with malicious intent. It was this idea that this is what God wants. And so the work of the priest and the careful ordering of society uh, were seen as sort of upholding creation as God intended. Well, Jesus would take a very different approach. 
And when he goes in and upends the tables and drives out those who are selling and exchanging, he's disrupting the functioning of the whole system. And given what we've said about how important this is and the symbolic power in this thing, it can help us see that what Jesus does is an incredibly earth-shattering event in this society at this time. Now, our text notes that in the temple, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, saw the money changers seated at the tables. And then uh, only John notes this, that he actually makes a whip out of cords. And so that shows he's not messing around. Um, And he drives all of them out of the temple. And these areas uh, in which all this would have been happening is huge. And there would have been a lot of animals and a lot of people. And so for Jesus to drive all of that out is a pretty uh, incredible act in and of itself. Nothing uh, subtle about his actions at all. So maybe Jesus is surprised at this mixing of commerce and religion. It's typically uh, understood, or we're given the impression that Jesus was maybe surprised to find what was happening, this mix of commerce and religion in this place of worship and prayer. Yet the commercial activity, it's helpful to know, at the temple was essential for the whole sacrificial system to work, for the whole thing to function. Right? People needed to come in. Often they came from outside Jerusalem. Pilgrims traveled a long ways to get there. They wouldn't have brought a bunch of animals with them, typically. And so they had to exchange money to be the temple currency. They had to buy the appropriate animal for their sacrifices. I mean, this needed to happen if they were to obey the commands and carry out the activities of, uh, of the temple. And so I don't think Jesus would have been surprised at this. This wouldn't have been a, a, something he would not have expected. Commercial activity was um, a normal aspect of any religious institution in ancient times. So we have to ask, what then was Jesus upset about? Well, some writers note that it wasn't simply the commercial activity, but it was the ruling class interests in control of the commercial enterprises and that temple worship obligations were especially hard on the poor, on women, and on those considered unclean, such as lepers, for example. And this world of the temple operations, um, which was representing, as we've noted, a world of oppression and stratification, was doubly hard on the people just mentioned, the poor women and the unclean, because they were considered sort of second-class citizens, if you will, and so they had to actually pay for extra sacrifices to pay for their, for their impure status. So we're going to hold you down here. You have to do some of the regular stuff, but then you have to do you have to sort of do this penalty on top of that to make reparations for your inferior status, which again benefits the ruling class who are making an extra profit on top of what they're already making on the backs of the poor. And so I think Jesus isn't just saying that we have to reform our practices here at the temple or we have to lower the price on doves because that'll be uh, better for the poor. I think he is calling for an end to the entire system. And his actions would have disrupted and shut down what was happening at the temple, at least for a couple of days, I would imagine. It would have been a world-shattering event. And then Jesus shifts the paradigm entirely. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And those listening say, are you kidding? This temple, we've been working on this thing for 46 years. It's still being worked on now. What are you talking about? 
you're going to raise it up in three days. But the narrator of John tells us that Jesus was, of course, speaking about the temple of his body. He has shifted the view radically. God doesn't dwell in buildings, especially those built on human stratifications and which reinforce the status quo of inequality. God dwells in here. And I think Jesus is speaking about himself at this point. God dwells in me. We also know Jesus is going to extend that. He says in John, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. So God is not only saying God dwells in here, in me, but God dwells in each and every one of you. The Apostle Paul picking up on this in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God dwells in you? This is a radical notion that God could be found in each and every human being. And it is a a radically egalitarian notion. Right? A notion that topples the human impulse to stratify and make levels and say these people are holier than these people, than these people, than these people, than these people. For a society that had encoded such a view in the heart of their religious and societal structure, it's hard to overstate how subversive this act of Jesus was. In three of the four Gospels, that is, the synoptics, not including John, tell this story or, or have the story happening toward the end of Jesus' life, right? The last week in Jerusalem, likely the event that triggers Jesus being arrested and ultimately killed. You don't challenge the powers that be and come away unscathed very often. The Apostle Paul would say there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All these stratifications on which society was built, undercut, toppled over, turned on their head. So in this act, Jesus is saying that God is not the property of only those whose society approves. God cannot be bought and sold. God cannot be withheld from people at any level of society. God is not only for the rulers and the powerful and the elite and the men and not only for people of a certain ethnic tribe. God is for everyone. God is in me in such a powerful way, Jesus was saying, that I am going to explode your institution, which though well-intended, doesn't actually reflect the kingdom of heaven or the way of God. So now that we've done some of that background work, maybe the question can finally be invited, what might Jesus topple or upend today? What often helps to look at what does a society hold as sacred, right? Because it's often those sacred things which are untouchable, but often reinforce the status quo. And in America, what's more sacred than the Constitution? 
that founding document which gives us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that amazing text which some believe has helped us create the best society in the history of humanity. Well, it's helpful to note that A, it isn't sacred. B, that it too encoded stratifications of humanity. In 1787, when it was drafted, it noted that representation in Congress will be based on the whole number of free persons and three-fifths of all other persons. Three-fifths. So if you were black and you were a slave, you were counted as three-fifths of a person, at least as far as determining the number of representatives in Congress your state got. And this uh, seems horrible in and of itself, but in actuality, most at that time didn't consider slaves to be human beings at all, but rather property to be bought and sold. And it was the South who said, well, can't we count, we have all these slaves, can't we count them as three-fifths of a person? Because that's going to help us get more representation in Congress. Because we have a lot of slaves in our southern states. And so, yeah, they're not really people, but we'll count them as three-fifths. And then we'll have even more representation in Congress, which will help us strengthen our hold on the laws of the land and upholding the institution of slavery. So you can see the, the double-edged sword that that whole three-fifths thing actually was. Horrible in and of itself, and also used to uphold the way things were. A very pernicious stratification and abuse of power set into writing, right, in a founding document for the ordering of society, for the creation of a world that puts some in inordinate positions of power and wealth and left others as second-class citizens or worse, as less than human. And just a quick side note on that, uh, it was actually this three-fifths clause which inspired the creation of the Electoral College. Because when they were first setting up uh, presidential elections, uh, Madison said that a direct election of the president by the people was uh, the best system, but he rejected it because slaves couldn't vote and the southern states would be at a disadvantage. Right? They're not going to have the same amount of voters in the south. So let's come up with this thing called the Electoral College, which is also based on this three-fifths clause and representation in Congress. And so we'll allocate presidential electors based on the number of Congress people each state has. And so this gave the south a bonus in the Electoral College. And in 1800, Thomas Jefferson, who owned about 200 slaves at the time, uh, wouldn't have been elected president if it wasn't for the presidential electors created by counting slaves for representation. A current professor of law and public policy puts it this way. Even though slavery is long gone, the electoral college, which allows someone to become president while losing the popular vote, <clears throat> This continues to haunt our political system today. It is a perverse legacy of slavery and the three-fifths clause in our Constitution. And it's no wonder that the great abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison considered the Constitution a covenant with death and an agreement in hell. 
Speaking of the Constitution, in support of the Second Amendment and the so-called right to bear arms, the National Rifle Association spent more than $52 million on the 2016 election cycle to carry on its increase, its effort to increase their hold uh, in our government. And what allows them to give that much money? Well, in 2010, the Supreme Court removed caps on independent expenditures, a move known ironically as Citizens United. And because nearly all of Congress on both sides of the aisle have been given major money by that and by other uh, lobbyist firms, little action for actual citizens seems to happen, whatever the issue. So when people argue, for example, against gun control or against compassionate immigration reform or campaign finance reform or whatever else, and you've been in this conversation with people, where suddenly they sort of run out of things to say, but they say, but the Constitution says, right? You've been in those conversations. And when you're in that point, I would kindly remind them that such a document is not without its flaws. And that any document that encodes and supports the status quo and benefits those in power and does little to foster compassion and peace, well, perhaps the ground they're standing on isn't as firm as they might think. Now, legally, they may have a point, right? Our society is set up in such a way that the Constitution is a founding document. But as we know, the law should not be confused with justice and equity and mercy. So do I know exactly how Jesus would respond on some of the most important issues of our day? No, not for sure, right? But I do know that he acted out of a profound conviction that God cares deeply for every human being and that every person is stamped with the image of God upon them. And that whenever we structure society in ways that leave people out or label them as undocumented, illegal, or less than human, whenever we create stratifications of identity and class, whenever we fail to act compassionately for children and the most vulnerable, we are acting counter to the gospel, counter to the kingdom of God, and it just might be time to turn over some tables today. Amen. Namaste. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Music